I'm sitting here in our Charlottesville headquarters, and I am delighted to have on the line Richard Falk, who is a very distinguished international jurist who is currently um, in Turkey, where he has long links with many strands of Turkish society. And he recently wrote a blog post that was on his blog and cross-posted on our Just World Educational blog about the Turkish election that was held um, recently. It was a presidential election. So, Richard Falk, I'm delighted to have you with us here. Thank you, Helena. It's great to be with you. And uh, even though we're at a great distance, I feel close to Charlottesville at the moment. <laughs> well, um, a lot's been going on there in Turkey. I believe it was yesterday, um, July 9th, that... Um, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan got, um, re got inaugurated after the recent election, but after some constitutional changes. So um, I'd love you, first of all, just to explain the constitutional change, and then this clearly has a lot of international um, implications, so let's talk about the international politics and diplomacy of what's been going on in Turkey. Uh, good. Uh, the, the fundamental constitutional change has been to replace a parliamentary system with a presidential system and a presidential system that gives uh, considerable powers to the president. It is often called here an executive presidency, which emphasizes... Uh, the uh, degree to which uh, Erdogan, as the first uh, holder of this presidential system, exercises very complete powers. At the same time, there is a uh, sense uh, that Erdogan himself uh, is committed to a certain kind of uh, political democracy. He's he shouldn't be equated with uh, leaders like uh, Putin or Duarte or even Modi. Uh, of course, each of these leaders has its own distinctive context, but the Turkish context, I think, is uh, more positive than the, uh, much of the international discourse uh, suggests, and I can explain why that is. Uh, if you yes, wish. that's a fascinating. Yeah, that's a fascinating point that you made in your blog post that um, international discourse and perhaps more especially in your blog post you were writing about um, the media, the corporate media in the West, um, and how, in your view, they have kind of systematically either gotten things wrong when looking at the Turkish internal politics, or they have maybe even just um, only been listening to a very small portion of the Turkish political spectrum when they're doing their reporting. Um, so I'd love it if you could talk about that a little bit. Is, is that an act, accurate characterization of what you were writing? Uh, yes, I think it's a very good characterization. It, it, it of course, there, there's one thing to say at the outset. There is a sharp internal polarization in Turkey 
that is generally understood as a tension between the secular opposition and the more uh, religiously oriented AKP party headed by Erdogan. I think that's an oversimplification that part of the polarization is geographic, that the uh, if you look at a map, the elect- who won the various uh, electoral districts in Turkey, it looks as though the AKP uh, controlled virtually the entire country except that western fringe, coastal fringe, and a little corner in the east where the HDP, the Kurdish party, uh, won a majority of the votes. Uh, so, it's, so, so it's the a Kurdish party, um, excuse me, the, the Kurdish party will be represented in the new parliament, is that correct? That is correct. They, ga- they gained about a, more, a little more than 11% of the vote, and you need the 10% uh, to qualify for the parliament, the 10, 10% threshold. It's interesting, Demirtas, the uh, Kurdish, the HDP Kurdish candidate for president, who's currently in prison uh, here in Turkey, got only 6% of the vote. And so most people interpret the difference between that presidential vote and the HDP vote as people in the secular opposition who decided their vote would count for more if they voted for the HDP rather than uh, for the CHP, their normal party that was the main opposition party uh, to Erdogan in these elections. Because uh, by voting, uh, getting the HDP across the 10% threshold, it meant a uh, majority opposition to the AKP in the Turkish parliament, which was a considerable victory for the uh, anti-Erdogan forces in the country. So there may be some parliamentary activity that um, can put, put or will put a break on, on President Erdogan, or will it just be sort of window dressing? What do you think? Uh, you can uh, reason it both ways. Uh, the uh, AKP is in a coalition with the far-right MHP, na- ultra-nationalist party, that does give it a parliamentary majority. And this has some people feeling uh, that this will push the AKP into a more uh, right-wing kind of uh, politics and more uh, nationalistic, particularly in relation to how to deal with the Kurdish challenge. Others feel that it gives um, the uh, uh, it actually gives Erdogan the option of other coalitions on specific issues where there's uh, agreement, and that if the opposition uh, seeks to have an effective governance structure, it might lead to uh, weakening the AKP uh, position in relation to policymaking in the country. But all of this, I think, depends on how the future unfolds that's pretty unpredictable at this stage. What we have seen from Erdogan um, 
very early on is that he's actually threatening, or perhaps he's already done it, to um, dismiss, I think, 18,000 people from the state bureaucracy around the country. And, of course, there are the continuing civil rights issues of people who were um, arrested and detained around the country, many thousands in the aftermath of the failed coup attempt of July 2016. So uh, could you speak a little bit about the um, about some of these concerns? Yes, they, they are genuine. Uh, there is uh, very many uh, per, very many people have lost their uh, livelihoods as a result of being dismissed from uh, governmental or public educational institutions uh, charged in various ways uh, as journalists. And it's, it is a very uh, serious uh, encroachment on constitutional democracy that has occurred in these two years. The only way that I think it should be understood, though, is that the government was faced with a, uh, a form of opposition that used as its principal strategy the penetration of all public institutions, including uh, the military and the police and the judiciary. I came back on a, we were in Istanbul for a few days and uh, we took a ferry back to avoid uh, part of the road trip. And just by coincidence, we're sitting next to a retired uh, Turkish general who was in the opposition. Hang on, this was, this was two, year, two years ago, right? When the coup attempt happened. Yes, the coup attempt was July uh, 15th. 2016, and and we happened to be in Istanbul for the, the only day in the summer that we were in Istanbul was coincidentally the day of the coup. Uh, but this general was interesting because he said that people in the higher levels of the Turkish military knew that there was this penetration of the public institutions, including the military, including to the level, the, the level of general officers, and that uh, it was, they knew this since 2010, and that part of the reason the coup was hurried and probably failed was that the Erdogan was about to, dis they had a list of the people from this Fatula movement that had reached fairly senior positions in the military. Hang on, so, so that is Fethullah Gulen, who is uh, accused by, by Erdogan of being behind the coup attempt, and he is this um, somewhat weird Turkish um, emigre who is currently living still, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Uh, that is correct, uh, although it's uh, not correct uh, to imply that there's much doubt about the fact that uh, this movement uh, did uh, organize and orchestrate the coup attempt, that even the uh, anti 
uh, Erdogan opposition here in this country uh, uniformly accepts that reality. It's only, again, in the international discourse that the language of alleged coup and, and accused of being the perpetrator is uh, credibly used. And that's part of the gap uh, between how the situation internally is discussed and how it's internationally uh, understood because part of the resentment against Europe and the U.S. Uh, that exists in Turkey and is pretty widespread is the sense that uh, either the coup was encouraged uh, by the West or that it was tolerated and uh, that uh, the uh, Washington and Europe basically uh, reacted in a wait-and-see attitude rather than supporting the elected government of a NATO member. And uh, you, you probably uh, know that the Fethullah Gulen himself had close CIA ties, that in fact that his green card was achieved over the objection of both the FBI and I think some other State Department uh, and was uh, uh, secured by CIA uh, pressure uh, when he became a uh, uh, asylum seeker back in ni the 90s, 96, I think, 1996. And then... Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that the relationship between Turkey and the international community started to deteriorate when uh, Erdogan personally had this confrontation with Shimon Peres at the World Economic Forum back in 2009 and then climaxed with the uh, Mavi Marmara incident in 2010 when a Turkish a uh, humanitarian ship was boarded by Israeli commandos and nine people killed. This ship was trying to break the blockade of Gaza and deliver uh, medical and other uh, kinds of uh, humanitarian assistance to the people of Gaza. So there is a complex history that partly explains the uh, overreaction to the 2016 coup uh, doesn't justify it, but it it makes it uh, clear, and maybe Americans would understand it by the kind of Cold War uh, attitude toward communists supposedly uh, uh, boring from within and subverting the government by penetrating it, and that gave a credibility to the McCarthy witch hunt of those years. And as I say, what happened in the U.S. to cause that kind of uh, reaction was uh, ten times milder than what uh, Turkey experienced in this lethal uh, coup attempt that uh, resulted in the deaths of at least 240 people. I really value you giving us that background because here in the United States, people far too often forget that. And I think you linking and, it and to, to... I would just add, and the media forgets it. See, the, <laughs> as I say, the, 
the Turkish uh, reality is always decontextualized as if nothing uh, explains why these people were dismissed from the government and the military. Uh, uh, not that it justifies that dismissal, but unless you contextualize it in terms of the penetration of these institutions, what they called in Turkey before the coup, uh, the parallel government that was being uh, established by this secret uh, uh, sect-like uh, religious uh, opposition to Erdogan, uh, you don't understand the complexity of the political reality here. I do recall in, I think it was 2009, um, my husband Bill and I were traveling in Turkey quite extensively and some of our Turkish friends in the business world were talking about there are special there were special networks there and even I believe secret handshakes that you would know that you were dealing with somebody who you know is also in this Fatula movement and it, it seemed to be very widespread. <laughs> yes, they were extremely well represented in the business world and they and it was a little like these uh, secret societies in. Uh, the Ivy League universities like Skull and Bones at, at uh, Yale, where these people maintain these lifetime uh, loyalty connections. And uh, that seemed to be particularly successful and prominent in the business world. The Fatula movement, as you may know, is, uh, is grounded in this uh, very extensive educational network that started here in Turkey but is now spread to over a hundred countries and earned several billion dollars for the movement, gave it very extensive funding, and did find, it did play a kind of constructive role in identifying talented, poor kids throughout the country and giving them free education and a kind of ideological orientation that uh, led to this uh, framing of careers and lives around loyalty to this very hierarchical institution headed by uh, this sort of uh, shadowy figure, uh, Fatula Gulen, who is reputed to have told close associates uh, that he envisions himself as the imam of the universe, not just <laughs> of the... Uh, Islamic world. We know people who have defected from the organization and Hilal particularly was approached uh, by the Gulen movement to take part in some women's events here in past years. So we've had some contact ourselves with them, uh, their mode of acting and the way in which they disguise their uh, political agendas. Interesting. So now that um, President Erdogan has, you know, won the electoral victory, won the constitutional um, position that he wanted and he's been inaugurated, do you think now is a time that he can actually 
um, try new ways of dealing with the with the Fatula Gulen people or with the people who in Turkey who were accused of working with the coup and rather than just clamping down on them and detaining and, and dismissing them, but actually, you know, trying to find ways to reintegrate them in, into Turkish society that are not so repressive. Well, I think, I think that's a, a remote possibility. I don't think it's a very proximate one because I think uh, the, the uh, Fethullah Gulen movement, as I say, is now linked to a broader campaign that uh, includes the uh, most radical elements of the Kurdish movement, the very hardcore uh, Kemalists that are prominent in Western uh, think tanks and are part of the reason that uh, media outlets like the New York Times or the Washington Post carry this very uh, uh, anti-Turkish line in their analysis of what's happening in the country, and the role of Zionism and uh, Israel in uh, focusing on Turkey as an enemy of the West. If you read the, you're probably familiar with the Daniel Pipes uh, Middle East Forum and the Bolton uh, Gladstone Institute, both of which emphasize both anti-Palestinian agendas and anti-Turkish agendas. Those are the two salient issues. And it does suggest this degree to which Zionism and Israel regard Turkey as a as hostile to their regional and uh, expansionist nationalist aspirations. So um, I think that's a great segue, actually, to looking at some of the regional um, implications of what's been happening in Turkey. Hi, this is Helena Cobbin again. I'm the president of Just World Educational, headquartered here in Charlottesville, Virginia. That was the first half of a conversation that I had with Richard Falk, who has been in Turkey for the past few weeks. Um, We will be airing the second half of the discussion where we talk more about regional and international issues. We'll get that ready for publication on our podcast series within the next couple of days. Um, You can find news of what we're doing, including our podcast series and other resources that we make available to the public via our website, www.justworldeducational.org, or via our Twitter feed, which is at JustWorldEd. So we look forward to having you follow us and read our materials there. Thanks. Bye.